Welcome to Policy for the People, a show that explores the public policies that can lift up all Oregonians. This show is a collaboration between KMUZ Radio and the Oregon Center for Public Policy. I am your host, Ken Adams. During his term in office, President Obama described income inequality as the defining challenge of our time. And yet, by some measures, income inequality in Oregon is about as high as it has ever been, according to a new report by our partners at the Oregon Center for Public Policy. Here to discuss the issue of income inequality and even more broadly, economic inequality is OCPP Executive Director Alejandro Corral. Hello, Alejandro. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ken. It's good to be here. Alejandro, your report looks at income inequality in Oregon. What would you say is the main takeaway from the report? Well, Ken, um, the main takeaway from the report is that even before uh, the pandemic took hold, income inequality in Oregon was nearly as high as it's been over the last 40 years, really as far back as our data goes. Our report looks at income inequality from uh, several different angles, but uh, let me just share with the listeners one fact that I think shows just how out of balance things really are. Our analysis shows that in 2019, right before the start of the pandemic, the richest 1% of Oregonians together were collecting more income than the lowest earning half of Oregonians. So you can think about it this way. If there were a room, say, with 100 people that were a true reflection of Oregonians, one person in that room would make more money than the 50 people in that room who earn the least. So it's clear that income inequality at this point is very extreme and has been for some time. So I want to explore more of the findings of your report, but before we do that, let's talk about why widening income inequality is such a problem. How does income inequality affect the lives of Oregonians? Yes, uh, absolutely. There, there is a growing body of research um, showing uh, the different ways that income inequality undermines people's well-being, um, and frankly, the well-being of our state and our nation. For instance, researchers um, have been pointing out that the link between inequality and health is pretty strong. Rising inequality leads to poorer health outcomes, uh, particularly around mental health, among those at the bottom uh, of the income ladder. Income inequality may be one of the driving forces behind shorter lifespans among certain parts of the U.S. population, and in that sense, one could say that income inequality is killing Americans. But the reality is that, I mean, it, it, it means less access to, you know, healthy foods, to health care, and a number of other things that really um, are at some point prohibitive. It's also pretty clear that income inequality reduces social mobility. Uh, in other words, it reduces the likelihood that a child born in poverty could rise out of poverty and into the ranks of the well-off. Uh, so one study, for instance, uh, found that low-income kids are more likely to drop out of uh, school in places where income inequality is higher, possibly because these children see little hope in the future. So income inequality is also killing the American dream. Uh, there is research also showing that income inequality is one of the drivers of the housing crisis. Uh, when the rich, you know, frankly have tons of money to spare, they're able to buy more houses, which in turn drives the cost of housing way up, making it harder for everyone else to afford housing. So there's an, a, a vicious cycle nature to this as well that we will talk also hopefully a little bit more later. But there's also evidence that rising inequality leads to lower economic growth. Um, 
And so if that weren't enough, obviously, income inequality undermines also our political systems and institutions, in part because it undermines the sense that the system is working for everyone, but also because it's giving outsized political power to the rich. If you were to say, look, I have an idea. Let's give a big tax cut to the rich and let's uh, let corporations avoid paying taxes. The vast, vast majority of Americans, and we know this from polling, would actually, would actually say, no, no way, we're not going to allow that. But yet, what we see happening is exactly that. And we believe that's because our political institutions mainly are responding to the interests of the rich. Going back to the report, you mentioned earlier that you examined data on income that goes back a while. Uh, what kind of data is that, and how far back does it go? Yeah, this is, this is an important question, because I think it's critical that we recognize both the benefits and the limitations of the data. So as you alluded, you know, this data um, you know, is in part limited by what access we have to what data, and we can go back as b- about 40 years back in time. Um, and because the data that we analyze is actually Oregon tax data that we received from the Oregon Department, Department of Revenue. Now, there are some great advantages to using these data. First of all, it's hard data. In other words, it's coming directly from all tax returns filed by millions of Oregonians as opposed to survey data. Secondly, uh, the data actually allows us to zoom in and see what's going on at the very top of the income ladder, uh, income ladder among the very, very rich. And these tax data then allows us to do much more, a much more refined analysis of income distribution at the very top compared to other sources of data like the U.S. Census. Um, one of the drawbacks, however, I think it's that the data source doesn't provide uh, information on income distribution by race. Um, and unfortunately, neither the IRS nor the Oregon Department of Revenue collects this type of information on taxpayers' race and ethnicity. So we are somewhat limited by that uh, because it doesn't tell the dimensions of, dimensions of, of, of income inequality along race. And so, uh, but, you know, the truth is that we also know from other sources that inequality is even more extreme when you look at it through a racial lens. And so we can combine different sources of data to present uh, 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 an estimate or a picture of uh, the degree that income inequality is driven by racial factors. Now, your report looks at income inequality from different angles, and we already talked about some of those. Are there some other highlights from the report that you would like to share? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot to look at there. I mentioned, for example, one of the benefits of looking at tax data is that it really allows us to, you know, look in closely at the very top of the income ladder. And one of the things that we have been tracking over time is how the top one-tenth of one percent are doing compared to uh, everyone else. So you can think of the top one-tenth of one percent as the richest one in every thousand Oregonians. Those are the super rich. And in 2019, the average member of the top one-tenth of 1% made, made $4.8 million on that year alone. That was not a record high, but, you know, it was very close. And then now let's just compare that, you know, $4.8 million per year to the median taxpayer, the, the, the taxpayer that is right in the middle of the income distribution. In that same year, 2019, the median or typical Oregonian made about $39,000. So to put it differently, just by, for perspective, the typical Oregonian would need to work about 128 years to make as much money as what the average member of the super-rich made in 2019. So over the past four decades, the income of those uh, in the middle, middle really best, 
basically stagnated, right? Me going up a mere $3,000 over those uh, 40 years. Meanwhile, the income of those at the very, very top has gone up and up and up. Um, there's one other data point I think that is really important to, to uh, highlight because it's, it's not only interesting, but it actually puts a dollar figure into what the rise of economic inequality has meant for the typical Oregonian. We calculated how much more income the median taxpayer, again, sort of the typical taxpayer right in the middle of the income ladder, would have if income inequality had stayed at the same level of inequality as it existed back in 1980, assuming the economy grew at the same pace it has. So it's a big assumption, but it's one that I think helps us understand how income inequality has changed over time. And so if inequality stood at the same level today as it did back in 1980, the typical Oregonian would be making about 60% more than they actually are today. The median income, in fact, would be around 66000 instead of 39000 In other words, the typical Oregonian would be making about 27000 more. And that obviously would go a long way in increasing uh, a person's economic security, ability to afford housing, etc. We're taking this short break to invite you to subscribe to our podcast for free. Find Policy for the People on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Now, back to the show. We've been talking about income inequality, but there is another measure of inequality that is just as important to mention, and that is wealth inequality. Can you tell us what the difference is? Right. A very important question. So income refers to how much money a person makes on an annual basis. So for most people, this is how much money uh, they make uh, in that one year from their paychecks. For the rich, uh, much of their income actually comes from their investments, income they make when they sell stocks, bonds, and so on. Income inequality, then, is actually a measure of the difference of how much money people make during a given period of time. Wealth, on the other hand, is actually referring to the value of all the things that you own minus your debts. So if you add up, for example, the value of your house, your car, any investments you own, uh, any business you own, and so on, then you subtract what you owe uh, to the banks and your creditors, and that difference is your wealth, or what some may call your net worth. So wealth is a better indicator of your level of economic security than income, right? Because you're not depending on that paycheck. It's really your accumulated assets over time. Unfortunately, we don't have a good source of measuring wealth and wealth inequality at the state level. But we do know from national data that uh, as unequal as the distribution of income is, the distribution of wealth is much worse. Uh, in fact, a report uh, from last October uh, indicated that just about 50 individuals, the 50 richest billionaires in the country, together had as much wealth as half of all Americans. Many Americans, in fact, have little or no wealth, and some even have negative wealth. In other words, they owe more than they own. There's also a racial dimension to wealth inequality, isn't there? Yeah, without a doubt, uh, and thanks for bringing it up, because it is really a critical point uh, uh, to understand the present-day reality. And, and, you know, as bad as wealth inequality is, uh, when you look at the general picture, picture it is an absolute nightmare uh, when you look at it from the perspective of, perspective of race. Uh, in the U.S., the wealth of the typical white family is about 188000 For the typical black family, 
their wealth is just about 24000 And for the typical Latino family, the figure is about 36000 And I think this is one of the places where we most clearly see the effects of structural racism. Uh, in the racial wealth gap, we see, I think, the accumulation of 400 years of history, you know, from slavery to the Jim Crow era of legalized segregation, you know, to the last 50 or 60 years of, uh, you know, inequ- inequitable policies and practices. Um, let, let me just give you a modern-day example. In the run-up to the Great Recession of 2008, uh, you may remember this, that a lot of banks actually made it a practice to steer people of color into risky, most co- more costly uh, subprime loans, even though they would have qualified for addition uh, traditional home loans. Then, of course, the subprime market crashed, and it brought down the entire economy, and the economic crash actually is estimated to have wiped out about half of uh, all the wealth of black families. So the impact is very real. And and this has actually a a long tradition in this country. Um, Back in the 30s and 40s, they had what was known as redlining, and they would not give uh, government loans to people in these red line districts. And those were usually the poorer sections, usually black sections. So we have a history on um, those kinds of policies that affect people based on, on race. We are speaking with Alejandro Corral, the Oregon Center for Public Policy Executive Director. Alejandro, how did we get here? What has caused this extreme historic levels of economic inequality? Well, that's that's a, a very very important topic and a, and a very large one to to tackle. Obviously, uh, so I'll, I'll point out a, a few um, key of the you know some of the key drivers of inequality. But I also want to um, highlight that there's many books being written about this. Uh, a recent one, uh, "The Whiteness of Wealth" by Dorothy Brown, I think, is one that really provides you know sort of a historic look at the policies and and and, and practices as you suggested just a minute ago, uh, that have really led to, to the outcomes that we see today. Uh, and obviously, you know, this didn't happen by accident. This is uh, the result of public policy choices over many, many decades. Uh, policy choices both here in Oregon and at the federal level, obviously. So let me mention some of those key drivers of inequality. Um, you know, I think one of the most important ones, and ones which we see very clearly in the data, is the decline of uh, unionization and how the share of workers belonging to a union has decreased, and how, uh, you know, because historically unions um, have ensured that a bigger share of the economic gains flow to workers in the form of higher wages as unions uh, uh, in membership has gone down, obviously the power of unions has declined, uh, you know, and not only have they come under assault by employers, but, you know, frankly, the federal government has mostly turned a blind eye. So income inequality has clearly uh, increased in in, 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 in tracks very uh, closely uh, the rates as union membership has declined. Secondly, I think that this investment in the public sector has been another major factor because, uh, you know, the public sector really can open the door to economic opportunity, as we saw in the period that followed uh, World War II, for example. College was practically free, uh, free for white Americans, thanks to the GI Bill which really helped create a broad middle class among the white population. But then, because of segregation and discriminatory practices, black Americans have not enjoyed those same opportunities, did not enjoy those then. And, and today, although college has become, uh, you, know, uh, m- you know, more and more unaffordable for, for a big share of the families, it, that is true for black, brown, and white families, right? So I think those, those are two factors. And then 
third factor is really the tax code, particularly at the federal level, because it is a lot less progressive than it used to be. Uh, you may recall a couple of months ago, uh, ProPublica broke a story about the nation's, uh, nation's uh, richest individuals, billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett, um, and how, how they have paid basically no income taxes for some years. And, and, and many of the nation's biggest corporations have avoid, uh, also avoided income taxes for many years. So those are our three key factors. There's other factors around monetary policy and the Federal Reserve, um, you know, that we don't have to get into. But I think what I want to get at is the last, perhaps one of the most important points in terms of these drivers of inequality, and that is uh, income inequality itself. In other words, income inequality actually begets more income inequality. Uh, this plays out, I think, in a, in, at least in a couple of levels. For one, the more income you make, the more money you have to acquire assets that produce more income, right? In, in essence, money begets money. Also, income inequality, as I mentioned earlier, leads to the concentration of political power. So as the rich become richer, they use the wealth to push through policy changes that further benefit the wealthy. So I think those are, you know, a big, broad picture of how we've gotten here. A couple of other things in that regard. In 1968, the minimum wage was, I believe it was $1.60 or $1.80. I don't remember the exact amount. But in constant right. dollars, that was the peak. And if you extended it out to uh, 2020, it would then be $12 and some odd cents. And currently, it's seven and a quarter in most states. Right. And so that's, that's one issue. The other th issue is, is before 1980, quite often wages were tied to productivity. And I saw a recent report that said if it was still tied to productivity, workers would be getting $25 an hour. Not, right. not you know, which most, yeah. that would be about $90,000, $95,000 a year. So that has been the impact on a kind of a more minute level for most workers, you know, what they make every hour. And right. I, I no, think that's, that's something that people don't understand, I think. Yeah, no, we have become an incredibly productive society, and certainly in part thanks to technological advances, which raises another question, right? As we have seen this trend, uh, you know, towards greater efficiency, greater productivity, uh, but stagnant wages and new technologies, I think we need to start thinking about what are the policies that are going to protect those workers that are ultimately are also running those machines, are also, uh, you know, the, 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 the life and blood of, of you know, the, the, the business. And so I think we need to think forward about how do we really start kind of creating uh, the kind of security that workers will need, particularly as unions, you know, continue to struggle uh, and the federal government does, no, uh, does not throw its, its weight behind, uh, you know, uh, uh, unions be really being able to organize. So I guess we should, at this point, talk about what are some of the policy solutions you would recommend to help address this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways the policy solutions obviously need to respond to some of the drivers of inequality that I mentioned earlier. Um, and so, you know, first, as I was mentioning, we need policies that restore bargaining power to workers. So, that, you know, we can demand a greater share of economic growth. Uh, there's a bill in Congress currently called the PRO Act that I think would even the playing field for workers seeking to form a union, and I think enacting it would be a huge deal. And related to, these, uh, to this uh, policy, we need other policies that actually increase the take-home 
paid-off workers, so picking up right where you left off around the minimum wage. Um, you know, and at the national level, as you mentioned, uh, you know, we have been really stagnant uh, at, at under eight dollars. Uh, you know, and so raising the minimum wage is imperative. Here in Oregon, I think uh, you know, we, not only have we made strides in in, in increasing uh, uh, the state's mandated minimum wage, uh, but we can also look to increase things like the earned income tax credit, which puts more money in the pockets of low-income workers. I would say Oregon is perhaps at the forefront when it comes to this issue, though obviously a lot more needs to be done. Another essential approach, I think, to addressing uh, this problem of income inequality is to strengthen the the public structures that that really create economic opportunity and provide economic security for everyone. So we really need to increase our investment in public resources to improve education, uh, make child care affordable and universal, health care, housing needs to be more affordable, and, and there are ways in which we can invest in those structures to make that happen. And we need to certainly make sure that every child in Oregon, frankly, has a benefit of a preschool education. Uh, that's critical when it comes to, to economic mobility, so we need to start at the foundational level. And also, at the other end, we need to make you know, public higher education really accessible to everyone. Um, of course, you know, we need to pay for those public investments, and the best way to do it is to have a progressive, equitable tax code and require the rich and corporations to pay their fair share. On the subject of tax- taxation, by the way, uh, you know, I think taxing wealth would be the most uh, direct way to address economic inequality. And we can do this, for example, by strengthening uh, the federal state tax, as well as by taxing some of the unrealized gains of assets, uh, such as stocks and bonds. Well, especially when it comes uh, to various companies buying back stock. And so they, they, they try to increase their wealth, not by their, um, what they're paid, but also by their stock, which, by the, right. which really contributes to that wealth inequality that we were talking about earlier. So um, is there any final point you would like to make that we haven't covered? Well, I think, uh, you know, I guess I'll say that uh, the, the challenge posed by income inequality is not so much about policy or the policy ideas or, or you know, figuring out how do we actually resolve the problem. I think from a policy perspective, it's, it's really not a big mystery uh, as to, you know, what, what needs to be done to shrink inequality and improve the lives of Oregonians. I think the real challenge is political, right? Uh, so if we are to confront income inequality, Oregonians need to get engaged. Uh, we need to demand that our political leaders do what it needs to be done to confront inequality. We know it's possible. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, I think Oregon is ahead of the curve when it comes to the minimum wage. Uh, most recently, uh, I think Oregon has been thinking about how do we expand such uh, tax credits as the earned income uh, tax credit? Uh, you know, how do we make it more inclusive? So, you know, this year, uh, you know, uh, holders of individual taxpayer identification numbers uh, that are filing taxes, uh, not using the Social Security number, but this ITIN number, actually have access to the earned income tax credit in Oregon. So there's ways which we can do. I think what we need is those political leaders to really step up and listen to the needs of Oregonians. And one of the things, too, that I noticed in uh, a recent article was that a lot of the groups that provide food, like Marion Polk Food Share and, and others, are finding that there's more people not requesting food for their families because of the child credits that are now incorporated into some of the new policies that came into effect this year. So that's a sign of some improvement going on. 
Absolutely, absolutely. That, that there are, I think, uh, uh, you know, good bright signs uh, for the future, and I think we just need to, as I mentioned, keep Oregonians engaged and uh, putting pressure on on you know their elected representatives. Alejandro, I want to thank you for coming in and talking to us today. And as always, it was a great policy for the people. Thank you so much, Ken. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Policy for the People. Please remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite app.